encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's the oracles of God, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but rather a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. This morning, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me again to Romans, this time Romans chapter 3. I want to preach a message to you that I've entitled, Gospel Objections, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, picking up in verse 1. Paul, continuing his thoughts, writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their, their, their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Please be seated and let's ask the Lord for his help as we look at this text together. Dear God, we pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim your word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, we pray that this same spirit will open the hearts of the hearers who have assembled to hear your word. We pray that you would write your truth on our hearts so that your gospel motivates the very beat of our lives. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The sin of the Jewish nation, if we're going to summarize it, would be the sin of unbelief. John Trapp, a Puritan of yesterday, said that the root of rebellion and apostasy is unbelief. Another Puritan said that sin is the insurrection and rebellion of the heart against God. It turns from him and turns against him. It runs over to the camp of the enemy and takes arms against God. Well, as we have seen since chapter 1 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul has called out all people, both Jews and Gentiles, for their sin. And in fact, he has pulled no punches in declaring that everyone, without distinction, are sinners and therefore worthy of God's judgment. Now, no doubt, the Jews who would have heard Paul preach or write like this would have cheered Paul on for calling the Gentiles out for their sins in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And no doubt they would have booed Paul when he charged um, the Jews with the same sorts of sins being under the judgment of God. But the Apostle Paul has utilized principles of God's justice. He has shown us that God is an impartial judge and the reality that God has revealed himself in several ways. He has revealed himself in creation, chapter 1 and verse 20. He has revealed himself in conscience, verses, or chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He has revealed himself in God's special revelation, that is, Scripture, or more in particular, the Mosaic Law. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The Jews were hearers of the law of God. So whether it's God's creation, or your conscience, or special revelation, or all three, God has proven that he has revealed himself, and because he has revealed himself and revealed his law, and because we have broken his law, it is true that all universally are guilty before God. 
Now, the point of this bad news, that all without distinction are guilty lawbreakers, will eventually lead Paul to speak about the good news of the gospel in chapter 3 and verse 21. But Paul is not quite there yet. He is not quite finished speaking about the guilt, in particular, of the Jews. And last week, he began to really sharpen his focus on the Jews. And this week in our text, he focuses again on the guiltiness of the Jews. In the early 1900s, there was an Australian pastor by the name of Henry Howard, and Henry Howard once preached a strong message that all men are sinners before God. And after his sermon, it was either an elder or a deacon, I don't know which, told Pastor Howard that he didn't appreciate Howard calling out sinners for who they were and sin for what it was. He said to Pastor Howard, call it a mistake, but don't speak so plainly against sin. Well, Pastor Howard took the opportunity to show the man a small bottle. It was a bottle of strychnine marked with the label poison. And Howard went on to say, I see what you want me to do. You want me to change the label. So suppose I take off the poison label and replace it with a label that says, Essence of Peppermint. Don't you see what happens, he said? The milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. And so Paul is pulling no punches. He wants everyone to know their guilt before God because of their sin. And it's not hard to imagine a Jew getting angry with Paul preaching against sin and calling him out for his sin. After all, Paul has seemingly attacked the very thing that identified Jews from other nations, namely circumcision. We ended last week with verses 28 and 29 For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I mean, with that line of thinking, it appears that Paul is in danger of saying that God has erased a distinction that he had made himself between Jews and Gentiles. Paul appears to be undermining the very foundations of Judaism and attacking or even mocking God's character and God's covenant. Well, Paul was both serious and witty. He was intellectual and practical. And as explained last time, he's utilizing a type of logic-sealed argumentation. It's called the diatribe. This was used by the most skilled Greek philosophers. And if you weren't with us last week, a diatribe is a literary device whereby the teacher, in this case the Apostle Paul, allows the reader, in this case the book of Romans, to be a spectator of an imaginary debate between the teacher, the Apostle Paul, and the student, in this case, an unbelieving Jew. And so Paul speaks candidly to this imaginary, unbelieving Jew and even anticipates his objections. Now, the point of this whole exercise is to solidify the teacher's logic and at the same time expose the student's faulty and, in this case, destructive reasoning. So by Paul saying in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, that an outward Jew physically circumcised could actually mean that he's not really a Jew and therefore not really circumcised was otherworldly for a Jew to hear. The Jew would reject what Paul said out of hand and probably uh, charge him with being crazy. But equally true and equally shocking is the other side of the coin, and that is, in verses 28 and 29, Paul is also saying that uncircumcised Gentiles who were inwardly circumcised in their hearts through faith by the Holy Spirit, that they were considered true Jews, truly belonging to the people of God. Now, it doesn't take a scholar to understand that God from the very beginning instituted physical circumcision. But God was also clear from the very beginning that the point of circumcision, outwardly speaking, was to serve as a sign regarding God's promises. And God was clear, whether it was twice in Deuteronomy, twice in the book of Jeremiah, once or twice in the book of Leviticus, that if your heart remains uncircumcised, then you are still in your sin and you are guilty before God for breaking the law of God. That's why the Bible says, the words of God in Deuteronomy, I want your hearts to be circumcised. Circumcise the foreskins of your hearts. Now, Jeremiah the prophet spoke explicitly about this 
in several different places. I want to read just one small portion where Jeremiah explains that God's intent is for hearts to be circumcised. God says to the Jews through Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, that is Jews. And then he goes on to say, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So really what Paul is preaching here was not novel. There's not that much of a difference between the new covenant And the Old Covenant, we all still need to be circumcised in our hearts. Now, I believe, along with a host of other commentators, that Paul is actually reconstructing actual arguments of gospel-rejecting Jews that Paul had come in contact with in his synagogue evangelism. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 17, I'll show you a couple of places where this occurred. First, it occurred um, in Thessalonica. Acts 17, verse 1, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And notice verse 2, when Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This means that the Apostle Paul had a dialogue with unbelieving Jews, and they would reject what he taught, they would ask him questions, and Paul would respond with reasonable, logical arguments. Okay, that was in Thessalonica. Now skip with me to verse 16. Now he's in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. He saw that the city was full of idols. Notice verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So here in Athens, Paul again reasons with Jews, and they accuse him of being crazy, of being a babbler, of speaking nonsense. So he did it in Thessalonica. He reasoned with the Jews. He reasoned with the Jews in Athens. Turn with me to chapter 18. He also did this in Corinth, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens. He went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul was always countering the Jewish understanding of salvation to say that I'm preaching the true gospel, you've got it wrong. And he was always countering the Gentiles, and he was saying to them, you have a knowledge of God written on your heart, God has created the world, you know there's a God, but there's only one true God, and that one true God is the one God out of all your plethora of gods that you aren't following. Paul reasoned with great logic, Jews and Gentiles to bring them and to persuade them into the kingdom of God. He did it in Thessalonica, in Athens, in Corinth. He also did it in Ephesus, Acts 19. Notice with me in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that is the Christians before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them, and he took the disciples with him, and he reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This he continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So in all of that experience that the Apostle Paul had in the synagogues, he had heard all kinds of arguments against the gospel that he preached. And so I believe he's reconstructing some of those arguments by providing here some objections in our text 
that people often gave. Now, it's even possible, as uh, the famous commentator John Stott suggests, that the gospel objections that Paul refutes in this passage were some of the same types of arguments that Paul himself used in his pre-Christian days when he was a Pharisee. And if that is the case, then Paul, the former Pharisee, debates Paul, the born-again Christian, before us in this text. Now with eyes fully open to the truth, from the blinding light and arresting lips of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus road, he brings up these objections, he refutes them to show that the gospel is true. Paul was well versed in Jewish objections to the gospel because he himself was a Jew. And he lived his whole ministry opposing the Jewish legalists. One day, for example, Paul was arrested in the temple itself. And they said of Paul, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, against the Jews, against our law, and against this place, against the temple. Acts 21, verse 38. Well, that was a false accusation. Paul didn't hate circumcision. For example, he had Timothy circumcised. And Paul wasn't ungrateful for his heritage either. But listen to this. Paul's love for Christ constrained him to preach Scripture instead of traditions. It it, it constrained Paul to confront sinners instead of coddle them and to remind them to look to Jesus, not themselves, not their tradition, not their heritage. For example, he said to the Corinthians, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So Paul will not back down. But in these verses, verses 1-8 through of chapter 3, Paul is echoing objections he heard against the gospel by Christ-rejecting Jews. And all of them center around the assumption that said this in effect. It said this, Paul's gospel makes a mockery of God's covenant with the Jewish nation and it makes a mockery of God's character because he's unable to fulfill his promises. Now, there are four primary objections against the gospel that Paul raises and refutes. And as we're going to see, these are the same types of rejections in principle that are raised against the gospel even in our day. So let's look at these in turn. Objection number one is found in verses one and two. It said that Paul's gospel disrupts or derails God's covenantal plan. Paul's gospel, they said, disrupts or derails God's covenantal plan. Notice the question raised in verse 1. Paul says, then, what advantage has the Jew? Now, this objection is raised by someone objecting to the gospel that Paul preached on the grounds of what Paul said about circumcision in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. Paul had often heard the following type of objection. If a true Jew is one inwardly experiencing circumcision of the heart, then what real advantage, verse 1, exists in being an ethnic Jew? After all, the Bible is explicit that God made a covenant with ethnic Jews and he chose them as a special nation. So the objector asks, what advantage has the Jew? Well, the Jews were right, Deuteronomy 14.2 You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So the Jewish objector is saying, is this a useless enterprise of God's sovereign determination? Does this mean, Paul, because of your gospel, that there's no advantage to belonging to the Jews, God's special people? Well, Paul anticipates this question raised And then he turns to the famous of all Jewish rituals, which he had spoken about at the end of chapter 2, the sign that the Jews had been cut out of the world to be his own special people. Notice verse 1 again. Paul says, Or what is the value of circumcision? What is its value? Now Paul answers in an unexpected way in verse 2, given the manner he spoke about circumcision. In chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, you might think that Paul would say, well, really, the Jew has no advantage. But that's not how Paul responds. Notice verse 2. Paul says, let me answer your objection. Much in every way are there advantages. Paul, Paul didn't believe that circumcision or law-keeping was unimportant. Uh, Paul never denied that the various privileges and blessings associated with being a Jew in the Old Testament meant they had no advantage. Paul was aware, for example, of Psalm 147 and verse 20. He has not dealt, God has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules, other nations, but we know his laws. Praise the Lord. So Paul responds, so much in every way are there advantages. 
Now, if you flip with me to chapter 9, Paul will go on to list these advantages. In verse 3, Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now he lists some advantages of the Israelites. He says, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption. They are the adopted sons of God. The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, the worship, true worship of God, the promises. Paul says in verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, this great history of godly men. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, came from their ethnicity. Jesus was a physical Jew. But here in Romans 3, Paul simply lists the chief way that a Jew had an advantage over a Gentile. Notice it in verse 2. Paul says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, later in chapter 9, he's going to explain the other advantages that I just listed. But here he's talking about the chief way. Chief among the advantage of being a Jew is that they had received the oracles of God. This was a far greater advantage than the Gentile, right? Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, they only have the law of God written on their hearts. There's nothing specific for the Gentile in Revelation, but for the Jew, they've been given the oracles of God. You see, the objection that Paul anticipates strikes, and you must understand this, at the heart of what separated Jews from Gentiles. It wasn't just circumcision, but it was the fact that God had made a covenant with Abraham. He had spoken his word to Abraham, the oracles of God, and so the objective, objector wonders whether or not this gospel Paul preaches, the only thing that has the power through the Spirit to circumcise hearts, that gospel, does that gospel somehow undermine or disrupt or derail God's covenantal plan to have a people for himself? And Paul's answer is, there's no disruption to God's covenantal plan. God's people were given the oracles of God. The Jews therefore knew in detail the terms of the covenant because God spoke it to them. They had it written down in the Old Testament scriptures, the tall lagia tutheo, the oracles of God, the divine sayings of God. God uttered from his mouth holy scripture and they had it in their possession. So you see, Paul was saying the problem was the Jews not taking advantage of their advantage. The Bible, instead of delighting in God's law, the oracles of God, they despised it. We could even apply Hebrews 5.12 to them. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. They had missed the basics of God's word, the basics of true salvation. Peter said, when the prophet or preacher speaks, he speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. And think about how many prophets spoke the oracles of God. And Paul says here in verse 2 that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That means they were custodians of its treasures. Collectively, the Jews were to be depositories of all what God's word said. They were stewards of the message. Just as Paul said he was a steward of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Thessalonians 2, so were the Jews. John Calvin says, and I quote, the oracles were committed to them for the purpose of preserving them. The Jews were depositories and secondarily dispensers of the word. That is to say, they were protectors of the word and meant to be proclaimers of the word. They were stewards of the word and therefore they were meant to shout its truths to the Gentiles. But Paul's point here in verse 2 is the Jews weren't good stewards of the word. They weren't good listeners. And because they weren't good, good listeners of the word, they largely broke covenant with God. They failed to be a light to the Gentiles. They didn't dispense God's word to the world and they didn't even understand it themselves. This picks back up on what Paul spoke about in verse 19 of chapter 2, when Paul said, If you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, verse 20, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? And obviously, as you remember last week, the answer is no, they didn't teach themselves. They were not good teachers of themselves or of other people. So the value of circumcision, going back to verse 1, for the Jew was eternally tied to the value he placed, verse 2, on the oracles of God. As Calvin says, the value of circumcision is, made, is not made to consist in the naked sign, 
but its value is derived from the Word of God. In other words, if they had been better listeners to God's Word, the covenant and circumcision would have greatly benefited them because the Word of God explains explicitly that the sign of circumcision points to God's promise of the covenant, that He will circumcise or forgive hearts who look to God alone for salvation. And we're going to see more of this in Romans 4. The example is Abram, who believed in God, credited it to him as righteousness. Jew and Gentile alike, if their hearts are circumcised, can be saved. Jesus said, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now what do you suppose Jesus was speaking about? Well, he was speaking about Israel as a whole. They did not bear spiritual fruit, but they looked like a religious tree. Jesus says, no, you're going to be judged. Jesus said in another place, listen to this, and he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Luke chapter 13. Now it's interesting that he says, look, for three years to the vine dresser, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. Jesus' ministry was three years. And for three years, Jesus had preached and debated against the Jewish teachers, and he said, look, you guys aren't getting it. I understand you think that you obey the law, but you're hypocrites. You've not trusted in true salvation. You're trusting in your circumcision. You're trusting in your heritage. You're trusting in your religiosity. So it's obvious that here in chapter 3, Paul is giving a preview of what he's going to say in chapter 11 when he says that the Jewish branches were broken off so that the Gentile branches, believers, would be grafted in. And then Paul says the Jewish branches were broken off, listen to this, because of their unbelief. Jesus and Paul were preachers of what the Old Testament taught. Isaiah the prophet said, And now I will tell you, what will I do to my vineyard? Remember, Jesus spoke about the vineyard. Isaiah says, I'll remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. God's judgment. Or Amos 3.2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. But this does not mean merely privilege, it means responsibility, because Amos goes on to say, Therefore, speaking on behalf of God, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Yes, I chose you out of all the families of the earth, but I'm going to punish you for all your iniquities. You see, folks, privileges imply duties. And Israel had not been faithful to their trust. The majority were unbelieving, they were unfruitful, they trusted in the sign of circumcision instead of what the sign pointed to, the salvation promises of God. They had an advantage, but they squandered it. And the value of their heritage should have led them to responsibility, which would have then led to faith, which would have then led to security. But instead they had a false security because they weren't looking at the promises of God, they were looking at the bare sign of circumcision and reveling in the fact that they possessed the oracles of God. They focused more on their privileges than their responsibilities that came with those privileges. So Paul's imaginary objector is saying that Paul's gospel disrupts God's covenantal plan, derails it, and Paul says, no, you squandered the advantages by breaking covenant with God. And I should hasten to say that if Paul were to write to the church today, he might bring up baptism and preaching. And if so, he might say something like this, membership in God's covenant community has many advantages like baptism, where you see the gospel, and the preaching of God's word where you hear the gospel, but don't be deceived. Hell will be full of people who were members of reformed churches who regularly sat under the exposition of God's word and participated and witnessed the sacraments because tares always grow with wheat. And where there are sheep, there are always wolves. This is the consistent message of the New Testament. I'll quote the author of Hebrews again. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that's the oracles of God, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but rather a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And Paul is telling the Jews, look, you may have a great heritage, and maybe you were chosen by God, but you weren't believing in the true gospel. Now, Paul moves to another anticipated objection in verses 3 and 4. The first objection said that Paul's gospel disrupts God's covenantal plan or derails it. The second objection, objection number 2, says that Paul's gospel destroys God's covenantal promises. Notice verse 3. Paul says, quoting the objector, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, this objection obviously flows from the first objection in verses 1 and 2. If the first objection dealt with God's sovereign determination regarding his covenant being a facade, disrupted by sin, derailed, which was somehow God's fault, that's the implication, Then the second objection builds on that, and it says that Paul's gospel charges God somehow as being unfaithful to his promises. Paul both raises this question and objection and refutes it. Notice verse 3. What if some, he says, were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The beginning of verse 4, Paul says, by no means. Now that first question could be translated, what then if some did not believe? That's really the idea. What if some were unfaithful? It's speaking about unfaithfulness in their belief. So follow this logic. Since the oracles of God, verse 2, that is scripture, had as its central message the promises of God's salvation to his people, then what is being asked and implied by the objector is this. If some, and he has Jews in his mind, If a handful of Jews, really it was the majority that didn't believe, but the objector says, what if a handful of Jews didn't believe? They didn't trust in your gospel promises. Does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? That's the question. The implication is it must, if your gospel is true, Paul. Now, there's a play on words which is actually seen better in the Greek because of the the Greek word pistis. The idea conveyed is this. If some to whom God's promises were epistuthesan, entrusted, did not respond to them in epistason, trust, will their lack of apostia, trust, destroy God's pistis, trustworthiness? If some to whom God's promises were entrusted did not respond to them in trust, they weren't good custodians, will their lack of trust destroy God's trustworthiness? Suppose God's promises in the Old Testament that he would send the Messiah were given to Israel, but some didn't believe. The Jew is arguing, but shouldn't God remain faithful to his promises anyway? A promise is a promise. If the Jews, God's people, lack faith in the promises, then does that not mean that there's a problem with God? That his faithfulness has been hindered? Well, of course not. The unbelief of man never affects God's faithfulness. So notice Paul responds with a curt, and you could even say violent. You could almost hear his voice raising in verse 4, me ganata, by no means. If you're using a King James, God forbid, or perish the thought. One commentator says the equivalent in our day would be like Paul saying, not on your life, not in a thousand years, me ganata. By no means. A favorite expression of Paul, it's the strongest expression in the Greek, and Paul uses it a half a dozen times in the book of Romans. He's saying it's impossible for God Almighty to fail in His promises. No, the issue is, the Jews failed to be a light to the Gentiles who were groping in darkness. The Jews failed to do that, and the Jews thought they were privy down to the last man to God's covenantal promises. But the reason that God can't be seen as unfaithful to his covenantal promises to Israel, though many didn't believe, is explained later by Paul. Turn with me again to Romans chapter 9. It's a critical passage, but notice what Paul says tucked away in verses 6 and 7. Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. 
and everything Paul's teaching. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is to say, verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Simply physically, that doesn't mean anything. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what Paul is saying here, this means, verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What he's saying is identical to what he said in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. If you trust in the promise of the gospel, then your heart is circumcised. And whether or not you've never been circumcised and you were born into a Jewish family, it doesn't matter. A true Jew, a true son of Abraham, is someone who believes in the gospel. So God wasn't unfaithful to his promises. The Jews were responsible for their unbelief, weren't they? They couldn't with a straight face pin the blame on God and say, well, God, you are unfaithful. You broke your promises. I I know we didn't believe you, but, but you made a promise. That is an absurd argument. God remained faithful because he always, listen to this, he always, in his electing grace, spares a remnant. And in the New Covenant Scriptures, the gospel promises of the Old Testament were fulfilled in the salvation of Gentiles. This was God's desire all along. Genesis chapter 17, Abraham, that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3.7 that true Jews are sons of Abraham by faith, not in works of the law, not in circumcision, not in your religious heritage. You see, the fault is not God The fault is with the Jew. If in their heart some Jews didn't believe in the salvation promises that circumcision pointed to, it it doesn't make their unbelief destroy God's faithfulness. Paul is saying, no way, Jose. That can't be the case. Or if you want to apply the same principle to people in the New Covenant today, and the sacrament sacrament of baptism, we could listen to what Douglas Wilson says. He says, and I quote, Can a Europe filled with baptized infidels undo the glorious truth proclaimed in the baptism? Wilson says, not a bit of it. God forbid. Every last covenant member could be a skunk, and God remains true. He then says, our task is not to conform the sacrament to the behavior of the people, but rather to conform the people to the nature of the sacrament. End quote. So this takes us to Paul's Second thing that he says in verse 4. He's done giving the objection and now he says, let me explain to you the truth. Verse 4, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is Paul's response to the objector. God's truthfulness and thus his faithfulness is to be assumed. It's not to be questioned. Paul is using an a priori argument. In Calvin's commentary, Calvin explains it as the primary axiom of all Christian philosophy. And if that sounds like too much to understand, let me break it down for you. All Paul is saying here in verse 4 is that we are to assume the best about God and the worst about us. We begin with that philosophical presupposition. So whatever issue you have, whatever evil is going on in your life, you can't blame God. He is good We are evil. God is a promise keeper. He tells the truth. We are promise breakers. We say we're going to obey God and we're liars. God tells the truth all the time, every time. We don't. So Paul is saying God is true. And by the way, that means he's right and faithful all the time. We are not. Every one of us has told at least one lie. And so, verse 4, every one of us is a liar. I think Paul is quoting Psalm 116.11 that says all mankind are liars. And Revelation 21 says that all liars have their part in the lake of fire. Paul is simply saying that if every person who has ever lived were to lie and not live the truth and break God's word, which by the way, everyone would if it wasn't for God's grace, it still can never affect God's ability to keep his promises. He's ever faithful to his word. And even more to the point, a false charge that declares that God is somehow faithless In the end, it's going to be shown, verse 4, that God be true. And that any Christ-rejecting sinner trying to say his sin renders God to be blamed will be found, every one of them, to be a liar on the last day. Now, Paul quotes in verse 4 a quote from King David that testifies to the fact that God is marked by truth and thus faithfulness 
while man is marked by unbelief and unfaithfulness. This quote is taken from Psalm 51.4. I read it earlier for a public reading of Scripture. This is where David is confronted by Nathan the prophet regarding his adultery with Bathsheba and then the sin after that, which was killing her husband Uriah the Hittite. So Paul says in verse 4, as it is written, let me support my argument, and now he quotes from Psalm 51.4, David's words to God in coming clean with his sin, God, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, there is some confusion with this statement, so I want you to take your Bibles and turn back with me to Psalm 51. I'm going to try to make this as simple as I possibly can. Some commentators don't even try to explain it. I'm going to at least try to explain it. I may fail, but I'm going to try to. In Psalm 51.4, let's read the verse in its entirety. David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now keep your finger there and flip back over to Romans 3. Notice it's in the passive. When you are judged, speaking about God, when you are judged or found to be true, it's in the passive because Paul is quoting from the Greek Septuagint. Now the Greek Septuagint is just the Old Testament version of the Bible that was written in Greek. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. So he's quoting the Greek Old Testament, which has it in the passive, when you, God, are judged. So there's a sense in which we judge God. And there's a sense in which David judged God. David judged God to be right in the sense that he was wrong. But if you flip back to Psalm 51.4, it's in the active sense. It says that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So in, in that sense, it's speaking about God's judgment of David. Now, now please note, both translations are, are really saying the same thing, just the opposite sides of the coin. Let me give you an illustration. If you borrow your neighbor's lawnmower and accidentally break it, you are blameworthy. But if you do the right thing and you fix it, get it fixed, or you buy him a new one, and you go to him to say, look, I I'm sorry, I'm going to come clean. I, I am blameworthy for and guilty for breaking your mower, but here's a new one. Your neighbor could say the same thing just in another way. He could say, you're forgiven. I'm blameless. E even though I had the money to, to, to buy it and to fix it, I appreciate because you're blameworthy, and I'm blameless that you fixed it, that you paid for it. This is sort of what comes out of Paul's quote of Psalm 51.4 and what Psalm 51.4 says in your English Bible. In the English, it says, God, you are blameless in your judgment. And, and in Romans 3, when he quotes the Septuagint, Paul is saying, when you are judged, God, you prove to always be right, always be blameless. The point is that David's words illustrate well that if something evil happens in our lives, man is always to blame. Because God is holy. He never does evil. And David acknowledges God's justice and his faithfulness, even in a context in which he stands condemned. Because David knew God is ever true and faithful. And far from unbelief or unfaithfulness tarnishing God somehow, it actually does the opposite. Our falsehood and guilt makes God's truthfulness shine brighter. It's like our sin being against the, the backdrop of a black velvet cloth. And God is the purity of a diamond. God is always justified in his judgments of us. His judgments, to quote Romans 3, 4 here, where Paul quotes Psalm 51, will always prevail. They'll always be right. And like David on our best days as believers, we will admit that when God is judged by us, we are always right when we say that he is always right and we are always wrong. David didn't try to rationalize his sin. There's no self-justification and like David, we too have unclean hearts, having done things that we assume nobody knows about, but God knows. And it bothered David so much to know that God knew, because Nathan had confronted him, that David decided with heart unclean, he would come clean before God with his sin. And God responded by cleansing his sin. You realize that that is what Israel needed. They needed their hearts cleansed. That's why Paul quotes Psalm 51 if you're still in Psalm 51, just notice the language that is used. Verse 1, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. 
Paul says, or, or excuse me, David says. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Verse 7, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 9, blot out all my iniquities. And then in verse 17, he says, God, you desire a broken and a contrite heart. The problem with the Jew is he didn't have a broken and contrite heart. He had a stubborn heart. He wanted to blame God for his own sins. God, it's your fault. You weren't faithful to the promises. You said you would save us. It doesn't matter that we didn't believe and we didn't obey. Our unfaithfulness proves your unfaithfulness. You see, the problem is not the oracles of God, that is Scripture, because Scripture is clear that confessors of sin receive the promises of God and and are forgiven or cleansed. Nor are the sacraments, circumcision or baptism, the problem. They're important signs of those problems, or, or those promises. The problem of man is that he thinks his problem with God is somehow God's fault, not his own. And human pride doesn't want to acknowledge human sin, but instead wants to lie and say that God is full of divine sins. But there's no such thing. God is never wrong. He's always true. This means He's always faithful, even when man is unfaithful. It doesn't destroy God's ability to be faithful. If you're a Christian this morning and a true believer, you will never blame God for anything in life, especially sin. You will come clean with your sin. You will declare, as David did, that God is righteous, that he is a righteous judge, even when this means you condemn yourself because you know that's the right thing to do. Well, the third objection we want to look at really takes an unthinkable and outrageous turn. Paul easily refutes it, but have you noticed how all of these objections build off one another? They're distinct, but they're related. For example, in the first objection, Paul's gospel, it was said, disrupted God's covenantal plan or derailed it. The second objection said that Paul's gospel destroyed God's covenantal promises. The third objection says that Paul's gospel denies God's covenantal prerogative. So if the first objection attacked God's sovereignty and the second objection attacked his ability to be faithful, then the third objection, listen to this, attacked God's justice. It was God's prerogative to be a judge. But the accusation here is this. Paul, if your gospel is true, then God doesn't have a right to judge anyone. And this is so bad that as Paul explains it, he almost apologizes. And I'll show that to you. But note the objection, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. That's Paul's apologetic By no means, verse 6, for then how could God judge the world, Paul says. Now the concept of God judging King David and David agreeing with God's judgment of him brings up a deeper question about God as judge. And the question posed by the objector has to do with the justice of God. This is an example of using philosophy instead of theology to make one's argument. Verse 5, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what are we to say? Well, then the only thing we can say is that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. How absurd. That's like saying that we have done God a favor by sinning. And in actual fact, we provided an opportunity for Him that He otherwise wouldn't have had to show His righteousness in judging us and telling us that we did something unrighteous. Paul says, what shall we say? What can we conclude if if our sin contributes to an opportunity to show off God's bright righteousness against the black backdrop of our unrighteousness? What do we conclude? What are we to conclude? Paul says that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. He's quoting the objector. Does this mean that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? This is such warped thinking to suggest that our unrighteousness is to be applauded because it gives God a chance to show His righteousness off to the world and that because we've honored Him by showing our unrighteousness, He would actually be unrighteous to then turn around and inflict His wrath upon us. This is so embarrassing to the Apostle Paul that he speaks parenthetically at the end of verse 5. He says, I I speak in a human way. In other words, I just want you to know, these aren't my words. These are the types of silly arguments I heard in the synagogues. And it's embarrassing. So he responds in verse 6, May, ganato, there it is again, by no means, perish the thought, God forbid. And he explains, for, 
if what you say is true, then how could God judge the world? In other words, Paul is saying, really? God is unfair to judge sin if the gospel I preach is true? How could you suggest this? Everyone knows that God is qualified to judge because he is righteous and because man is unrighteous. Chapter 1, verse 32 Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul says, look, you know Genesis 18.25, Jew. You know it really well. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Your whole Torah is about God being a judge because he has a law. And now you're saying that if the gospel I preach is true, renders God unable to be just when he punishes people? Since God is judge, how can he not make judgments? Your argument is absurd to think that way. It is God's prerogative to be judge. Now, all of this takes us to the fourth objection. The first objection said that Paul's gospel derails God's covenantal plan. That was an attack on his sovereign determination. The second objection, Paul's gospel destroys God's covenantal promises. That was an attack on his faithfulness. And the third objection, Paul's gospel denies God's covenantal promises or prerogative, verses 5 and 6. That was an attack on his justice. The fourth objective says that Paul's gospel distorts God's covenantal purpose. This this is an attack on God's glory. The third objection was really out there. It seems to be strange coming from a Jew to say that if your gospel is true, then God doesn't have a right to be a judge. The Jew reveled in God's judgments of Gentiles. But verses 7 and 8 help explain that third objective. And actually, I think is a fourth objection because it goes even deeper into sin and accusations against God. And I love how Paul deals with this. He's rather cheeky or snarky. By the way, Paul always was that way with Jewish legalists, hypocrites. He didn't have a problem using sarcasm. That's what they needed to wake him up. And in verse 7, he actually impersonates a gospel objector. Notice the language of verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? He's impersonating the objector by including himself in the first person singular. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? He's impersonating and mocking this objector. Paul was such a great preacher. He anticipated the objections. And he was a great listener. He knew his audience as well. He knew the Jewish synagogue well. So he impersonates their objection to the gospel. Now remember, at this point, Paul has really only mentioned the gospel one time in the whole book of Romans. That was chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul said, the just shall live by faith. If you want to be declared righteous by God, it doesn't come by works of the law. It comes by faith. Faith alone, as we say. But as Paul preached that faith alone message, here was the type of argument people made. Notice your Bibles, verse 7. But, based upon the previous objection, if through my lie, just as our unrighteousness displays God's righteousness more brightly, verse 5, and therefore God's truth or faithfulness abounds to His glory, this is what Paul's saying, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? In other words, if my sin makes God look good, then verse 8, why not just do evil that good may come? This is sophistry in its most subtle and dangerous form. In other words, the objector, as Paul presents him, is saying, how can God judge me or condemn me when I have glorified Him by sinning? I've had an opportunity to give God an opportunity to put His righteousness on display. I've actually glorified God by my sin. The the objector is suggesting that the sinner should go on sinning to his heart's content and moreover get good at it to provide an opportunity for God's grace to shine. The more the sin, the more the glory. This is an argumentum ad absurdum. And Paul doesn't even really respond to it hardly, but he does in chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What does Paul say in verse 2? There it is again. Meganata. By no means. The end never justifies the means. But here in 3.8, Paul goes on to say that he was accused of this very thing, teaching this way. He says, As some people slanderously charge us with saying... 
there were those that accused Paul of preaching the gospel and that the gospel suggested, you're forgiven, you can live any way you want to live. And to those who made such false accusations against Paul, a preacher of grace, or any other preacher of grace, Paul says at the end of verse 8, their condemnation is just. The slanderers that Paul is talking about, obviously, are the Jewish legalists. They are the ones that uh, prided themselves in honoring the Sabbath and not only being baptized but also being circumcised and saying that faith in Jesus was good but it, it didn't go far enough. And so because Paul preached the free sovereign grace of God, they said, Paul, your problem is, is that you are against the law. You're an antinomian. You're against God's law. Because those that heard Paul preach free grace heard him saying something he wasn't saying. All Paul was saying was, you can't earn your salvation by obedience. But they said Paul was an antinomian, that he championed a motto that said, go on sinning that grace may abound. Paul clearly denies this slanderous charge. Just flip with me for a moment to Romans chapter 7. I mean, could Paul be any clearer than what he says in verse 7? What then shall we say, that the law is sin? No, by no means. There it is again. Yet if it had not been for the law, Paul says, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Paul says, I love the law of God. It revealed to me my sin. I'm not anti-law, antinomian, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. And then skip to verse 12, Paul says, so the law, here's my conclusion on it, is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So Paul refutes them by saying that the condemnation of antinomians is just or the condemnation of legalists is just. Either interpretation of verse 8 is possible, but here's the point. Both are true. And given Paul's support of God's law as a means by which God shows us our sin and leads us to salvation, it doesn't mean that we can then throw away God's law and live however we want. God's grace isn't a license to sin. But neither was God's law meant to be obeyed in order to achieve salvation. So Paul's gospel didn't teach antinomianism. Free from the law, O blessed condition, we can sin all we want and still have our remission. Nor did Paul teach work salvation through circumcision or honoring the Sabbath or baptism. If the law I obey, I will be okay. Works, works, works will be my stay until that long-awaited day I will be okay. No. Here's the point of the fourth objection. God receives glory not by your sin. Do you understand that? You do nothing to contribute to the sovereignty of God as a Calvinist by saying your sin doesn't matter. Sin never glorifies God. But that is what they were distorting the gospel to teach. And these are the objections. Now, throughout the sermon I've applied these objections and shown how in principle they can apply even in our own day. Let me give you just a handful of other applications. Number one, these objections to the gospel teach us, first of all, and it's what I just said, though God is glorified ultimately in his righteous judgment of sinners, it is foolhardy to say that man's unrighteousness somehow is commendable. God is glorified by people in hell. And God is glorified by judging sinners. But that doesn't mean that you're helping him by contributing with an unrighteous life. God hates sin. Psalm 5.5 5, The boastful shall stand before God's eyes and God hates all evildoers. Secondly, we should find no comfort in a God who doesn't also judge because that's false security. You know, everyone wants a loving judge when they've committed a crime. But when the tables are turned and a crime has been committed against us, we cry justice. We cry out to the judge to punish the one who's committed the crime. God is righteous, therefore he must be able, and rightly so, to judge. And he's always right in his judgment. So don't fool yourself in thinking that God isn't judging. Number three, false doctrine oftentimes manifests itself in loose living. If you have unorthodox beliefs, that's probably going to lead to immorality. For example, what you think determines how you live. If you view sin lightly, then you're going to expect God to view your sin lightly. And you're never going to confess your sin and seek forgiveness. And you're not going to understand what true justice is because when someone else is offended, you just sort of wipe it off and say, just, just, just love the sinner and hate the sin. Or if you think that grace is a license to sin, 
Trust me, you will fall into temptation in the snare of the devil. You can't live a life that's antinomian because you think it doesn't matter how you live and and think you're going to get away scot-free. Your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. Number four, man goes to great lengths to cover things that he doesn't want to believe with sophisticated, philosophical, theological arguments to explain away what he doesn't want to believe. And that's what the, the Jew does here. But when one follows the Bible, he allows the tensions that are in the Bible that we don't understand to remain and lets the chips fall where they may. That is a person who's committed to God's word, not constantly looking for loopholes to explain something away that you don't want to believe. You know, people do this all the time with God's sovereign determination. You remember what Paul said in Romans 9. I'll just read it for you. He says, It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that's his sovereignty, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God ordained that Pharaoh would have a hard heart and wouldn't let Israel go until the plagues came. And Paul says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And Paul says, But who are you, O man, to answer back God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? But you say, many say that Calvinism is too strong on God's sovereignty and provides a loophole for man to sin without any consequences. Why worry about it? God's ordained it. Or then others say, Arminianism gives man too much freedom so that true Calvinists don't need to appeal to the will when they evangelize the lost. These are straw man arguments. Here's a fifth thing. An attitude that says only dramatic conversions are real conversions or that you've truly experienced God's forgiveness because your sin was so great does harm to members of the covenant community who have been believers their whole life. And I can tell you that that little principle in verse 7 of Romans 3, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory... Or the principle of verse 5, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. In principle, people take that and they run with it. When I was a kid, it used to be very, very popular to bring people into the church who had been delivered from life of great immorality, sin and drugs and all sorts of bad things. And I lived most of my early life up until my middle teenage years before I ever had any real sense of security in my salvation because I always thought I've not lived bad enough to be forgiven. We see, that's a bad view of depravity. And it's a bad precedent to say, this person was really saved. Look at how bad they were. And whoo, trophy of grace. Well, how do you think that makes covenant children feel who are just as depraved in their heart? There's a sixth thing I want to share. Membership in God's covenant community is not your final security. The gospel is. The gospel is. The gospel alone. We love the church and we love confessions and catechisms and we love to read God's word. We love to fellowship together and hold people accountable. It's wonderful to participate in the sacraments and to witness the sacraments, but none of that saves you. Just like circumcision didn't save the Jew in the Old Testament, baptism will not save you if that's all you have or you're viewing that baptism in addition to faith will save you. No. It's faith plus nothing. That equals everything. And the seventh thing, inviting people to church may not technically be evangelism, but it can lead to evangelization. I've heard many people, and usually the street preachers, who say that there's no point in inviting people to church because that's not evangelism. But wait a second. What does Paul say in this passage? There is great advantage to hearing the oracles of God. There is a great advantage to having a, to have your baby baptized and to be able to tell that child when they're older, you've received the, the, the sign of the covenant. Believe in Christ. Look to Christ. So if we invite people to church, we're placing them at a greater advantage because they're hearing the word of God. And if they don't come, our witnessing should be marked with the same strong apologetic flavor that anticipates their objections and argues with biblical logic. We should be thinking people. Christianity is a thinking man's religion. And here Paul argues, he raises and refutes all sorts of objections and he leaves 
any unbelieving Jew that might be listening, feeling kind of stupid and understanding that God is logical and God is reasonable and God is right and God is true. But perhaps the greatest application of this passage is found in the truth that none of us deserves the reward of salvation, no matter our religious affiliation, and all of us deserve God's judgment. It's only in Christ that we will see justice and mercy kiss to birth a child into the kingdom of God. Only God's mercy, only His grace. The story is told when Puritan Thomas Hooker was dying that his family and friends gathered around his bedside and one who stood by weeping looked at Mr. Hooker and said, Brother, you are going to receive the reward for all your labors. And Hooker looked up to this person and said, Brother, the only thing that I'm going to receive is God's mercy. Mercy is not what I deserve and what you deserve, but mercy is what we desperately need. And until we see that we are far more depraved than we often give ourselves credit for, we'll, we'll never see the glories of the gospel. We'll never revel in the power of God to save wretches like us. But when we understand our sin, whether we've lived a rank immoral life or we're a child in the covenant, either way, the gospel's the same. One sin against God's law means we're guilty of breaking the whole thing. We all need mercy. We all need grace. May God and His sovereignty provide it for us. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.